We continue now with our Old Testament reading. It's found in Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortals who cannot save. When their spirits depart, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed is the one whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, the Lord who remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever, your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. A number of people have asked me why we are um, why we're doing the, the prayer vigils. Why the prayer vigils have sort of become a part of the rhythm of our life as a congregation. There are a lot of reasons, but one of them is that it gives us an opportunity to encounter God in a way that normally we probably wouldn't. We all live our lives with busyness and stress. There are things pushing us, pulling us all the time. And life seems to be a blur most days. And for most of us to find 15 minutes, 20 minutes of solitude to pray is almost incomprehensible. So the prayer vigil is one opportunity for us to get away from the noise and the busyness and to go into the the prayer room and to encounter God. And that's really what it's about, that we encounter God. I believe God created us to encounter Him. We're looking for God to do something more than any of us could ever do on our own. Anything we could ever manufacture by ourselves. We're looking for God to do the miraculous, for God to to do something transformative in us and in the church and in the communities where we live and the people we interact with. We are praying for God to do something big. The prayer vigil is one way in which we have an opportunity to encounter God, to meet God. We find as we read the scriptures that people who come and desire to meet God do indeed meet him. Because God loves to encounter us. God loves to meet us. God loves for us to come to him. He loves to work in our lives. And he loves to reveal himself to us. So we never have to worry if we come to God, if he'll be there. We never have to worry when we come to God if, if he really wants to do anything significant. We know he does. And that's why we come together to pray. Because we're looking for, for, to be people who live with that sense of encountering God. And when I read Psalm 146, I, it strikes me as the, the writings of someone 
who has encountered God. They have had some kind of an experience with God, either once or on multiple occasions. And, and after this experience, the most natural thing to do is to praise Him. The psalm ends and begins with praise. And that is the most natural and right thing for any of us to do when we encounter God. It's to praise Him. To offer to God our worship. To thank Him. To glorify Him. To simply pour out our praise to Him. And I believe that this is what the psalmist is calling us to do as well. He's calling us to to engage in, in, with God in such a way that praise comes out of us. But sometimes in order to understand the positive, we have to see the negative. And so the psalmist begins here in verses 3 and 4 by saying, Do not put your trust in princes and human beings who cannot save. When their spirits depart, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. There are a lot of theories about what exactly he's talking about here with princes and, and, and other human beings. But I, I think he's simply saying, whatever the best things you can imagine about creation, whatever those things are, the best people, the best gifts, the best circumstances, the best places to live, the best cars to drive, whatever best is of the circumstances of this world, if you make those things core in your being, you've missed it. If anything of this world is first place for you, you've missed it. You don't understand what life is really about. Because eventually, people disappoint us. And people die. And cars and houses fall apart. And gifts disappear. And, and food goes away. And famines come and droughts come. And eventually, everything of this created earth is going to be gone. And if that's what we've placed our hope in, we've missed it. You'll notice that the psalmist says not just this negative command of don't do this, but he also says, choose God. Put your hope. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord their God. It doesn't mean that God blesses some and doesn't bless others. And you hope, just sort of hope and pray you're in the right group. He's talking about people who have said, I'm looking at my two options. I can, I can choose to find my hope. I can choose to find my, my being, my, my understanding of life and, and the world with things that are created. Or I can choose to do all of that in God. If you want to be blessed, choose God. If you want to know life as, it, as you were created to know, if you want to know life to its fullest, choose God. Because the stuff of this world simply doesn't do it. And the psalmist says, if you choose God, if you trust in Him, if you put your hope in Him, you will be blessed. So why are we blessed for looking to God for help? Because God is nothing like anything in creation. God is not like even the best of creation. The most important word in this psalm is the four-letter word, Lord. It's usually capitalized in our English translations. They're trying to, they're trying to capture the, 
the, the meaning of the Hebrew word which we have come to, to say is Yahweh. It goes back to, to the days of Moses. Moses is in the wilderness in Exodus 3 and he's tending sheep and he looks over and he says, sees a bush that's on fire but it's not burning up. And he says to himself, you know, I ought to check that out. And he walks over and he looks at this bush and it's still not burning up but it's on fire. And the voice of God comes to him out of the bush and he says, Moses, I've seen my suffering and the suffering of my people in Egypt and I want you to go and bring them out. And he and God have a little discussion about that. And eventually he says, okay, but he says, who do I tell them sent me? I can't just walk into Egypt and say, hey, I'm here. They're going to want to know, who, who's sending me on this amazing mission? And God says, you tell them Yahweh sent you. You tell them Yahweh sent you. It's a hard word to translate it, it's sort of, it's all wrapped up into the meaning, I am who I am, I will be who I will be, I was who I was. But the thing about it that I find in this psalm particularly is that it's the personal name of God. It's not a title for God, and we have lots of titles in Scripture for God. He's our refuge, our rock, our redeemer, the almighty one, the sovereign Lord. We have a lot of titles for God. This is different. This is God's personal name. People call me a lot of names. Some of them you don't want to know. That's why I don't let any of my childhood friends ever visit because they could tell you stories about my nickname. But there are people who call me Reverend Odin. I remember the very first time anyone ever called me that, my very first instinctive thought was, my dad's here? Oh, you're talking to me. Oh, oh yeah, I guess I am. That's true. Um, you know, Reverend Odin, Pastor Odin, you, you know, there are all, people have these titles that you get. And, and there are uh, a few people that call me, uh, there are people that call me Wes. There are just a select few people who call me Dad. But you know, there aren't very many people that call me Wesley. Now, there, I only know of three groups of people that call me Wesley. My grandmothers called me Wesley. I don't know why, but they called me Wesley. And my parents, when they were really upset with me, right, you understand that. And telemarketers. Because <laughs> they don't know any different, right? If the phone rings and they ask for Wesley, we automatically know this is a telemarketer. Now, between services, I was walking through the halls and I had about a half dozen people call me Wesley. So I don't know what's going to happen with that now. But I told them if they call my house, I'm not taking the call. But You know, that's because they don't really know me very well. If they know me, they're going to call me Wes. And some people feel a little bit uncomfortable not using a title. You know, they, they've been raised in a tradition where you, you call the person in my position pastor or reverend or some type of title of respect. And I understand that. And sometimes it's hard to transition out of that. How much more God? And yet, the Almighty One says, I want to be known as Yahweh. Because I want to have a relationship with you that is personal. I want to know you, and I want you to know me. And I want our relationship to be, to be more than titles. As important as those are, I want it to be personal. This is the kind of God that we worship, who wants intimacy with us, not distance. And that personal connection 
begins right from the beginning of creation. The psalmist says that this, this Yahweh that, that I'm praising, this Yahweh we worship, is the creator of heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. And he, I think he's trying, among other things, trying to help us understand that this God has created us to be in personal relationship with him. And he created us on purpose for that. The ancient stories of, of most of the other uh, religions of the world and the ancient cultures of the world have creation stories in which their gods create, not because they want to, but because they have to. It's, it's a punishment that they're, they're giving to one of the lesser gods, and so they create earth and throw them to earth as a punishment. Or they're bribed or cajoled or manipulated or tricked into, into creating the earth and people. It's our, our God is so different. It's His plan from the beginning to create us. It's his, it's his desire and His purpose to create us because He loves to create and because He loves the creatures that He creates. And He wants this personal intimacy with us. And the psalmist says that the God who creates not only creates, but He's faithful to His creation. Always faithful to His creation. That is saying something when you consider how much we have messed up God's creation. Our, by, by our sin, we have skewed and twisted everything that God created perfectly. All of the good that God, God did, we have found a way to twist it into something evil. And so when it comes to creation, we have no qualms about using it for our own purposes and abusing it for our own purposes. And we do that with each other. We might have a, just a twinge of guilt when we walk on the backs of other people to get what we want, but it goes away. We use people. We often look at people and think of them of, even in ways, subtly in ways of, how can they help me get what I want? We think about some of the conversations we have. We engage in a conversation. We even start a conversational topic. Why? So that eventually it'll get around to something great about ourselves that we can tell this person. Instead of just listening to them, caring for them, loving them as a beautiful creature of God. But what we've done to creation doesn't, mean, doesn't now mean that God is going to be unfaithful when he's done with us. It actually proves even more God's faithfulness. Because despite our sin, and despite all the ways we have corrupted and twisted the things that God has created, He is eternally faithful to us. But you know, the Creator is still just a little bit impersonal. And so the psalmist takes us that much more, that much deeper into who God is, into the nature and the character of God as not just creating, but how he, how he deals with people. And this God who created everything and controls everything, the Lord who flinches for no one, whose power is impenetrable, the psalmist says, this is how you describe him. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. 
The Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. So as you sum up the character of Yahweh like this, he cares about all the people that other people don't care about. That's the nature, that's the character of this personal God, Yahweh. Who are the most vulnerable people in our society? I don't know, it might be people who live in refugee camps, illegal aliens, children who've been lost in the system, people who we might think are a drain on society's resources, people with addictions, people with, with syndromes that make social interactions difficult. God knows them. He watches over them. Who are the people that we tend to ignore? God knows them. He watches over them. Who are the people that we might have a tendency to think we're better than? Maybe people that are less educated. Maybe people more educated. Maybe people who, who have pretty bad habits that are totally opposite of things that we think are right. God is there with them, watches over them, cares for them loves them. They are valuable to God. And you'll notice that there's no sense here of God judging people as to how they got into the situation they're in. Because that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter why people are dealing with what they're dealing with. He just cares for them and watches over them and loves them. But it's not just enough, the psalmist says, that God helps them. God also frustrates the ones who oppose them. In fact, he says the people who oppose them are wicked. The word frustrates means to be bent, crooked, to pervert. And it's as though you have this sense of someone who has realized that there is this group of vulnerable people that if they take advantage of them, they can find huge gain for themselves. And they map out this plan, and it's all set into place, and they start in the motions of doing it, and in the middle of it, God says, I don't think so. And he turns it. And if we think that, that how we treat people doesn't matter, the psalmist tells us differently. He says, they, people may believe that their oppression of people who are vulnerable has no consequences, but it does. If we mistreat vulnerable people, we are putting ourselves on the opposite side of Yahweh. If we say some people are less valuable than others, then we are staking our claim in the camp that's opposed to Yahweh. If we disregard the needs of, of people whom society shoves to the curb, then we have put ourselves right in the crosshairs of Yahweh's wrath. In ancient times, foreigners had no legal rights. They, they come to a community to live. They were typically slaves. They lived with a huge level of anxiety and apprehension because they had no rights. They had no importance to people. And the fatherless and the widows were much in the same boats. They couldn't own property. They, they, they couldn't get much of anything, and it led them to lives of despair. And the culture and the society took advantage of that over and over and over again. 
Dennis Kinlaw says that what the psalmist is trying to tell us is that if you touch a man's wife, you have that man to deal with. And if you touch a man's child, you have that child's father to deal with. You touch a widow or an orphan or an alien, you have God to deal with. He watches over people. And you know, this isn't something new that the psalmist has just discovered about God that God didn't do before. This is who God has always been. Jesus hangs out with the very people that the psalmist describes here because this is what the Father has always done. All through the Old Testament, this is the God who shows up again and again. And sometimes we might question God's nature about some of the commands of war and punishment. But, but what kind of justice would God love if the wicked are never held accountable for their actions? God cares about people who cannot put money in our pockets. God cares about people who aren't going to help us gain any more power. God cares about people who aren't going to lead us to fame. He cares about people who have nothing to offer Him. They can't begin to give Him what others do or, or know what others know or do what others do or, or build up His reputation like other people might. In fact, by the fact that God hangs out with these people and, and even says that He likes these people, lowers His reputation in the eyes of many people in this world. God saying to us, if he has to choose, if it's one or the other, he'll take the people that we tend to ignore. And it tells us something about the deeper meaning of praise. You'll notice that in this litany of people that are important to Yahweh, the psalmist says that the righteous, the righteous are important to Yahweh. He loves the righteous. And I suspect that that the righteous are probably describing people who might be face, face persecution for their faith and stand firm, but I think it's also people who have decided that if they're going to follow God, then that means they treat people the way God treats them. And they have the same mindset about the people that society throws to the curb as God does. But the way we treat people is rooted in who God is. Sometimes we think that this, this sense of, of equality among human beings is something that's written in our Constitution, the Bill of Rights, or you know, the Geneva Convention, or, or maybe it's just because we're just good people. And those things are important, but at the core of it, it's simply the nature of who God is. And people who have had an encounter with God treat people the way God does. It's how we praise God. The psalmist begins this, this uh, psalm by saying, I praise God all of my life, every moment, every day, all the time. It's not limited to words or songs on a Sunday morning worship service. We praise Yahweh appropriately when our words here lead us to actions out there. And if we truly want to praise Yahweh, we want to declare who He is to the world, help people understand the nature and the character of Yahweh, what He does, what He cares about, then we who are His followers live in a way that they see that. And we're great at singing praises to God, and that's important, 
and we're great at, at praying prayers of praise to God and of gathering together for worship, that all of those things are vitally important. But praising Yahweh in a gathering is never intended to be an end in itself. It's a catalyst for living a life of praise every single day. And one of the most profound ways that we do that, one of the most profound ways in which we live a life of praise for Yahweh is to care about people he cares about. And if we say we've had an encounter with God, and if we say that, that our life is about praising God, then that ought to be coming out in some form that we have the same attitude, the same mind, the same actions toward people as God does. I think somewhere along the path of our understanding about God, we have come to believe that salvation is primarily about the not yet. We, we often talk with people about becoming a Christian so that they can go to heaven. And that is certainly important. And that is a, that is a, a vital part of our faith. But I think we have skewed a bit God's intention for salvation. Because while being a follower of Christ does ultimately lead us to heaven, it's not just about the not yet. It's about the here and the now. God wants to transform us now. God wants our primary focus in our relationship with Him to be what He does in us now. But we live in His blessing and we live in His grace and we live out His character through His Spirit in us now. Our encounters with Yahweh are, are not primarily about getting into heaven, but to make us new creatures today. To be agents of bringing His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And we've met Yahweh. We've encountered Him. And the most natural thing to do is to praise Him. And that praise is not one time on Sunday, but it's every day, every moment, about how we treat people, about how we live. Jesus says to, in Matthew 25, 40, He says to the righteous, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did for me. I think William Wilberforce may have understood this concept as well as anyone in recent history. Many of you know Wilberforce's story. He was born a couple of hundred years ago, and he was born to a very wealthy family. And At the age of 21, they're trying to figure out what he could do with his life, and so they, they got him into Parliament and became a member of the House of Commons. He was a member of the Anglican Church, of course, but he didn't believe in God. Had no religious interest at all. When he was 25, his mother said, I'd like to take a vacation to the Riviera, and I'd like for you to go with me. Now, you got to remember, there were no airplanes in those days, so you traveled by carriage. Imagine getting into a stagecoach and going from here to, I don't say, New Orleans with your mother. And you're a member of the House of Commons. But, you know, he was a dutiful son, so he said, okay, but let's take two carriages and I'll take a friend with me. And so he talked a friend into going with them. 
And they decided that in this long carriage ride, they ought to do something. So they said, let's read a book together. So they looked at the bestseller list, and one of the books on that list was Philip Doddridge's book, The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul. And they read that book to each other to the Mediterranean while they were there and all the way back. By the time they got back to England, this book, The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul, had gotten under Wilberforce's skin, and he said by the time he got back, he was beginning to believe in God. The next summer, his mother said, let's go again. He said, all right. He talked to his friend. They said, what should we read this year? And they said, well, let's read the Greek New Testament together. Now, I, I know most, most of my colleagues in seminary could never sit and read the Greek New Testament. I know I couldn't. But here they were, reading the Greek New Testament to the Mediterranean and back. And by the time they got back to England that, in that second year, Wilberforce had opened his life to Christ. He realized that in the very next session of Parliament, he needed to do something. And he began to see something going on in society that he had not really paid attention to before, slavery. And in the next session of Parliament, he introduced a bill to end slavery in England. And for the next 37 years, he reintroduced that bill to end slavery in England. In the 37th year, the bill passed on a Friday. And the following Monday, just three days later, early in the morning, Wilberforce died. I think that's an example of someone who understood what it was to praise God. To live, to live a life of being so enamored with who God is and relationship with God and encounter with God that it just naturally comes out in caring for people that other people don't care about. And it's not easy challenging and it pushes us but it's what people who've had encounters with God do and it is one of the most profound ways to praise Yahweh I want to invite you to join with me in the prayer of confession that's printed in your bulletin As a response to the Word of God and in preparation for a time of prayer and Holy Communion, let us pray together in unison. Almighty God, you have blessed us beyond anything we could deserve. We have every reason to give you thanks and praise, but so often we do not. We confess that we take your blessings for granted. We acknowledge that we come to see your gifts as a right rather than a privilege. And because we are ungrateful toward you, we are also ungrateful toward each other. Heavenly Father, forgive us. Make us to live the words of the Apostle Paul. In everything, give thanks through Christ our Lord who has given us so much. Amen.
the ushers come forward, I invite you to stand as we sing together the doxology. Praise God from your gifts. We thank you for your blessings. Father, make us people who live lives of praise every day. May the gifts that we offer now be a token of our praise to you. And we ask this through Christ Jesus.
give the opportunity now to pray together. And if you would like to use the altar as your place of prayer, I invite you to join me. Father, we thank you for this day that you have made. We do indeed want to rejoice and be glad in it. You have blessed us with so much more than we could dream or imagine. And today we come, offer our thanks and our praise. Father, we know that you're involved in our lives. We thank you that you are helping us in our times of distress and struggle. And we pray specifically that you will heal every person who is dealing with illness. And you will comfort all who are grieving and you will restore relationships that are broken. We think about the future and wonder where life is heading and decisions we need to make, struggles that lie ahead. In each of those, Father, we pray that you will help us to see and to know your presence, your mercy, your grace with us. We thank you for these three weeks of praying together. We believe that you have done marvelous things, but we also believe that you want to keep doing more than we could dream or imagine. Let our hearts be flooded with your presence, with your Holy Spirit, as we move out of this intensive time of praying, but into a life more committed to prayer. Open our eyes to see you and to know you and to hear you. You work miraculously among us. Father, we, we pray that you will help us to stretch, stretch our faith as we think about the faith promise given. Some of us have made pledges that are beyond what we could do ourselves. We trust you and believe that you are going to work miraculously. And we are excited about hearing and seeing what you're going to do. Father, as we prepare to come to your table, we pray that you would pour out your abundant blessing upon the bread and the cup of which we're about to partake. Let it be food for our souls. Let it be one more means of encountering you, being filled with your spirit, and of surrendering ourselves to you. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for your presence in our lives. We offer ourselves and we offer our prayers to you. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, our coming King, the one who teaches us the model for prayer which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.